Welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our Asian Pacific Islander communities. I'm your host, Rasha Goal, and today we have a very special guest, a multifaceted creative force to our show. He is currently the senior producer of arts and culture at PBS SoCal, producer of arts and culture anthology documentary series, Artbound. And he's also the winner of four Los Angeles Emmys, the LA Press Club Television Journalist of the Year, among numerous other awards. And I have to say he is an award-winning television reporter, documentary filmmaker, playwright, and cultural activist with a remarkable career spanning across various artistic disciplines. My guest has made significant contributions to the world of arts and culture in downtown Los Angeles. It is my pleasure to welcome Nick Cha Kim on our show. Nick, thank you for being here today. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Rasha. So happy to be here. I hope I can live up to that introduction. Oh, I'm sure you'll be able to. You have done some incredible work that has been leaving such an impact on people and our city. Um, so much to talk to you about, Nick, but I want to, first of all, just talk a little bit about your growing up in Los Angeles or in the U.S. in general uh, as a Korean American and maybe something that really stands out to you from your youth. Well, I would say the event that stands out the most was the 92 LA uprising. I'm sure if you were in LA at the time, that was, uh, you know, that was a, a turning point for communities of color, right? You know, for me, I was a senior in high school at the time. And um, I was, you know, pretty much a, a good student, you know, a well-behaved student. But that also happened to be the one day I decided to ditch school. You know, uh, we had already been accepted into colleges. So we were all like, you know, it was senioritis, right? And it just, that was the day I was like, you know what? I was, I was hanging out with my friend and I'm like, let's just go to Malibu and, and chill on that day. And so um, we got in our car and I, I, I grew up in Arcadia. So I drew, we, we took the 10 freeway essentially. And at that moment, I, it was just, it was wild because it was bumper to bumper traffic. We noticed fires on both sides of us and, you know, uh, uh, police cars and ambulances going down, you know, that uh, emergency lane along the sides. And we had no idea. There were palm trees on fire on both sides. But we weren't, you know, I was a senior. I wasn't listening to the news. I was just listening to K-Rock <laughs> at the time and just, you know, jamming to music. And we had no idea what was happening. Um, you know, of course, School was let out and my parents were terrified. This was before cell phones and pagers and they were wondering where I was. And of course I got caught. I, you know, that, that, you know, that happened. But what really struck out to me was at that time, I was kind of loosely interning for the Korea Times English edition. And that Saturday I went to go visit the offices in Koreatown. And there was this moment where I was just kind of like walking down Vermont, uh, like across the street from the Sizzler um, and, and the bowling, the bowling alley. And there was this like, like late seventies Brown kind of like car drove by and there were two African-Americans driving by. And of course, you know, you've had it by then you've had a few days to sort of like let the moment sink in. You still don't understand what's going on. But as they drove by, they flashed a peace sign at me. And I will never forget that moment because in, in that instance, 
I realized that, you know, this was uh, an issue that was that was problematic for both communities and that, you know, that, you know, that we should be standing in solidarity. But like there was no like I did not f feel fear in that moment. What I felt was acceptance and we're in this together. And that that moment has carried on with me. I'm so glad it went that way. You know, uh, that's very short interaction. Um, it was just a moment. It was a flash. They drove by, flashed to the side, you know. That was a scary time, though. Um, I think especially feeling all the racial tensions between the, the, the two communities, too, with the African-American community and Asian-American community with all the businesses that were in downtown. So mm -hmm. but I, I'm so glad that you were able to have a beautiful moment out of that that you can share now. Nick, you have such an interesting background, um, as I had mentioned, you know, with your career, how your career has spanned so many different arenas. But you have a really interesting story about how you fell into journalism. So I'd like to tackle that first because it's not the typical story um, of how of what the route is normally like. And then I want to talk about, you know, documentary filmmaking and playwriting and the different cultural events that you've been a part of. So talk to me about that first, your, your journey of navigating or falling into journalism, I should say. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was completely by accident. I'm actually a, a college dropout. I, you know, I was studying English at Berkeley and, you know, more than anything, Goodwill Hunting had just come out. And I think at that moment, everybody just wanted to be a screenwriter. And that was something that I really desperately wanted to break into with screenwriting. And so like, honestly, a semester before I would grad, I graduate, I would graduate. I just left and moved to LA and just decided that I wanted to be a screenwriter. And I started writing. Um, and you know, I so you know most journalists have gone to journalism school. They have some background. They they understand the idea of sourcing and objectivity and the importance of those things, right? They understand media bias. I had none of that background. Um, what happened was, you know, I just I wanted to be a storyteller ultimately, and through a roundabout way, you know, um, you know, I had dabbled in in theater and playwriting and. And, and television writing, I was trying to, you know, uh, I was entering competitions that I just was not winning. Um, and ultimately, I decided I would just produce, self-produce a documentary film. Uh, at that moment, I I was kind of like deep into the LA, downtown LA art scene. And I was friends with a lot of street artists. And so I produced an hour-long documentary. And that was my foot in the door at KCT, actually. Um, and what happened was, they were starting a new show uh, or bringing back a show called SoCal Connected, and they were looking for an arts and culture reporter. And they asked me if I was interested. And at the time, I kind of like, I, that was something I wanted to be. Anthony Bourdain was huge. Like, who doesn't want to be Anthony Bourdain? So what I did was I, I created a fake reel. You know what a reel is, right? It's like clips of things that you've done. But mine was entirely fake. I was just going around neighborhoods and talking about like, on oh, this corner, this happened. Total fake. And I edited it together. But at least what it did was it just, it showed like kind of like my chemistry with the camera and, uh, you know, my level of comfort, you know, just walking around and talking about things. <laughs> but I need to stress that it was total, totally a fake reel. But, you know, and they... <laughs> but you know they knew that i you know i i told them it was fake it was just kind of an, a way for me just to get my you know just to have that conversation and um the executive producer of the show asked me if i was interested at the moment art walk was that 
was scheduled for that Thursday and I invited her. I said, I said, Hey, come down. I'll give you a tour. Let's, you know, go to some galleries and I'll introduce you to some artists and some gallery owners. And we had a great time. And at the end she was like, so you want the job? <laughs> and I was, I was flabbergasted. I was like, listen, I, I'm going to give you an out. I have never done this before. And to her credit, she was just like, ah, it's easy. You can do it. And that was kind of the boost in confidence that I needed was somebody's belief in me. And she ultimately became my journalism mentor. She was my journalism school. And I was on that show for four seasons over five years. It was, it was an excellent process. You know, I got to learn, you know, like how to be on camera and how to interview people. Cause you know, I didn't have that sort of background and she was just there to guide me along and, and was just sort of just more interested in my perspective on things, you know, and, and my ability to, I guess, just talk to people and engage. Right. So yeah, by, by accident. And I'm so thankful for that moment. So, so thankful because it's led me to where I am today. What a great story. And it was a great show, too, because I think we've got to explore so many different opportunities uh, through your lens here in Los Angeles. And as we know, this is truly a culturally diverse city and there is so much here. Now, I want to talk about Gallery Row really quick because I understand that um, you were at one point kind of known just as uh, the Art Walk guy. Right. So art has been such a pivotal part of your life. So talk to me about Gallery Row, because I feel like you enter into these different pockets of your life, but you really it's not just about creating and doing something. You're leaving an impact as you're moving on to that next part of your journey. You know, thank you so much for that, for asking about that, because uh, it's been a few years since I've been in that world. But, you know, that is also another example of something that happened quite by accident. And, you know, this is where I think our friend groups are so important, you know, like we're not just an average of like the five people we hang out the most, but like they are, you know, they influence to do things. And uh, at the time I was, I was friends with, you know, he's my best friend now, but you know, his name is Shell Hagen and he owned an art gallery in downtown LA. It was honestly a speakeasy. It was kind of like uh, an excuse to go party and, 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 and show art as a fun, you know, as a place to just hang out and, and commune with other artists. And it became kind of a popular hotspot in downtown. And we were hanging out one day and it was entirely his idea. You know, it was like, you know, we were looking up, up and down Main Street. You know, the gallery was on Main Street between 3rd and 2nd. And if you know downtown, downtown Los then, Angeles, I downtown just want to Los Angeles. That. Yeah. You know, this is, this is like 93, 94. And downtown was dead. It was a ghost town. Like people would come into work, you know, at all the, you know, the finance in the financial district, and it, it would empty at six. And in that area downtown, and mind you, this is just blocks away from City Hall. But this is how derelict downtown was. The street lamps didn't even work. There were no storefronts for blocks. There was nothing open anywhere. And he was just like, you know. Wouldn't it be great if this was just all art galleries? And so it was like, you know, I was the writer of the group. Everybody else were just sort of like party promoters. And, you know, we, we had no background in community organizing. And so our plan was this. It's so funny. We joined the neighborhood council, the downtown Los Angeles neighborhood council. He ran for a seat and I was his alternate. And I wrote a proposal to designate 
Main and Spring between second and ninth as Gallery Row, a creative district, a district dedicated to the promotion of like arts and culture. And, you know, we went to this block party, <laughs> like that was uh, sponsored by, uh, you know, uh, Councilman Antonio Villaragosa at the time, you know, yes. formerly the mayor, but and also Jan Perry, who was uh, the council person of District 9. And they got a copy of our proposal, this like little nine page PowerPoint, and they presented it uh, to city council to vote. And they like within months, like it happened so quickly, within months, it became approved as this creative district. And all of a sudden, those blue kind of like wayfinding signs just popped up exactly where we des designated main and spring between second and ninth, and it, it became official it was city official and so it was through the neighborhood council that uh we were able to like create this idea but it was largely on accident and it was really an excuse for you know art kids to party and hang out together <laughs> but you created something that has had such a profound impact, you know, and, and really left a mark. And I think that's important to acknowledge. You helped kind of revive a place too, which takes a really bigger agenda and commitment. You know, a lot of that is the intersection of like, say, arts meets economic development because, you know, the area was so depressed at the time. And, you know, there were a lot of property developers that were like looking for ways to like, how do we like, attract renters and make money and you know what happens is they always invite the artists first uh because they need they need a lot of space uh it needs to be empty so they can make a lot of noise you know whether they're bands or they're sculptors you know like using heavy machinery they need those kind of amenities right they need to they need space and they need to be allowed to make noise and so and and also cheap rent like most importantly they need a cheap rent. And so it was just actually prime for kind of this creative community. Now, th th that's not to say it didn't exist. A, a creative community existed, it existed at the arts district, which is adjacent to where Gallery Row is situated. But there were no galleries there. That's just where the artists lived. And so they also needed space to exhibit, to show right and and invite people to look at their work and and gallery row just became became this place where there was a lot of empty storefronts these developers were desperate for anything to happen they you know they even allowed us just to like use their windows and we would do like window installations but that alone helped make the area just feel safer you know at the time it was downtown was just known as this it was dangerous, right? You didn't want to go down there because you could get attacked, right? And really the challenge was just changing that perception as, as a place that isn't dangerous, as a place that is a destination, in fact. And I love how you used art to do that. And then speaking of creative and art, I do have to ask you this. As the executive director of Niche LA Video Art, now you, cur you curate digital and video art shows which is so fascinating. So how do you see the intersection of technology and art shaping the future of creative expression? Because we're definitely moving in this direction. And talk a little bit about what trends you're excited about in the world of digital art. Well, again, amazing question. Thank you. I, you know, Niche LA uh, Video Art was, it's a, a video and digital art gallery that I had in the Spring Arts Tower. It was on the fourth floor. I had the space for I had the space for seven years, but as a gallery, it lasted for five. And it was part of the downtown art walk because that, that's what ultimately came out of Gallery Row. And I started it for a couple of reasons. As, the found, as one of the co-founders of Gallery Row, you know, what we were trying to do is attract 
new gallery owners to create, uh, you know, to build their galleries in this in Gallery Row. And the best marketing tool was well, I opened up my own gallery. It's I can do it, so can you. Um, <laughs> And so that was like one reason, but the other reason was, you know, like as somebody that is very interested in film and uh, uh, the video, right. I wanted to create like um, kind of an alternative art space because everybody else was kind of like more into the fine art. Um, and so I wanted to create a space for video art as well. Now, in terms of the future, what's happening now with, you know, generative AI and all that kind of craziness and, and Beepo selling his digital art for, a gazillion dollars like that story is just amazeballs nfts i i i'm actually just it's not excitement that i feel it's more curiosity because while that is happening something else is happening and that is like copyright trolls right because they're now coming back and saying you're stealing my artwork and now you owe us money so i'm very curious what's going to happen with digital art once you know the the copyright trolls start catching up and seeing like how their media or their clients media is being used and so you know there's i think like like all things like startups there's it's a bubble right now and potentially that bubble could burst and we'll see what happens you know i'm curious too because I also look at it from the emotional side of an artist as well on the mental health of that, because mm -hmm. as artists, we are creating, right? And then to know that your work is potentially being stolen or there's copyright issues, I think, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how those waters are navigated over the next few years, because mm -hmm. I feel like that space is exciting, but at the same time, we just don't want to put the artist in a bind, you know, because I mean, I know artists work so hard to even just get sure. their work out there even to make a living. You know, a lot of art is actually, you know, what is it like? Decent artists borrow, great artists steal. Like that's a real thing, you know. Um, artists are always influenced by other artists, and they may straight up like reimagine it. Like look at you know the the Shepard Fairey story when he took that Obama uh, when he created that Obama portrait. The photographer, the original AP photographer, you know, they it ended up in a lawsuit. I'm sure they settled. I don't know exactly how how that ended up shaking out. But that's that's an example of of artists being inspired by existing material that's out there, uh, reimagining it, um, you know, be, being transformative with the work, I think is important. Um, but, you know, I think, isn't it that the greatest form of flattery, right? At the same yeah. time? <laughs> true, true. That is so true. I want to jump ahead and talk about Artbound. Um, the series that you've been working on. And, you know, I, I recently watched Chinatown Punk Wars, which was, oh, I really enjoyed that. I, I want you to share a little bit more about the series and even um, this particular piece, because, listen, I learned so much about Chinatown that I did not even know and about these worlds that were existing and even just the rivalry and the growth. It was really fascinating, Nick. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about um, Artbound what inspired that for you. Thank you. So we're currently in our 14th season um, and uh, Artbound is, as you mentioned, it's an Artbound is an arts and culture anthology documentary series. So we produce um, six episodes. They're each an hour long and they're each a different story. So we try to cover a different art form and um, a different community with each episode. We really try to spread it out. Um, 
And it is a, a documentary series that really centers the artistic process and how that intersects with culture because art is very cultural, you know, because the artist is coming from a place, you know, they have a background, they are drawing from as they create. And we really, really try to uh, deep dive into that artistic process. Um, and so, you know, for Chinatown Punk Wars, the, that community, it's, it's the punk community and it's also the Chinatown community. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of those stories I've always wanted to tell. Like I'm, you know, in back in college, Fugazi was like my favorite band. So I, I love punk music. I love how anti-capitalist the messages are. And that's, that's just always felt right to me. And, to, but you know, a lot of people didn't know this story about how LA punk came to be. So Chinatown Punk Wars, it sounds like if you just like listen to the title, it sounds like, oh, Chinatown was warring with Yes. Right. But that's not the case. What it is, is it's a story about how these two Chinese restaurants and their rivalry with each other to be the known sort of hotspot for punk music. And, you know, it's a very interesting case because this is a story that's set in 79 to 81. Um, you know, at that time, punk was not really accepted in the venues along the strip. They really didn't have a lot of places to play, especially with kind of like being known as, you know, with the fans being as, you know, slightly destructive. I don't know about slightly, yeah. but, you know, kind of being a rowdy crowd, right? <laughs> so, but uh, at the same time, Chinatown was experiencing this decline. You know, like it was like actually the the Chinese population was moving out. The tourists weren't exactly coming in and they really needed to create, a, you know, they, they needed to reimagine Chinatown. They needed to figure out new ways to bring an audience in. And so when, um, you know, uh, this music promoter had this idea like, well, you know, a lot of these Chinese restaurants just happen to have cabaret licenses at the same time. So it's like kind of like this, like they have a restaurant and they also have a cabaret license, which legally permitted them to to put on shows. And so when this uh, music promoter had this bright idea of like, let's, you know, let's program some punk, you know, originally they were sort of resistant. But once they saw how many people were coming, you know, um, and how much money that they could potentially make. It, it became an obvious choice for them. It's a story about these two subcultures that were looking for a place to be, looking to survive. And, you know, it's a story about how they united to, to, just, to just survive. Yeah. Uh, which is the story of immigrants uh, at the end of the day, right? Well, and that's what I was going to add to that is that what I really loved about it. I'm not into punk music to be very transparent with you. But again, learning about that culture was very interesting on how it evolved. But I think seeing the tenacity of these restaurant owners, of these Asian immigrants that were here and what they were looking to build for themselves and really find a place to sustain and to build a living and to be a part of the competitive world. I think for me, that was really fascinating. And I want to just commend the research that went into this um, because my God, the people that you found to interview on this, they were just incredible and in what they brought uh, to this doc. So thank you for that. Thank you for thank that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges of working and one of the pleasures as well of working on uh, Artbound is that it is, it's a local show. So we really need to find uh, stories that centers uh, Southern California. Um, and so when you do a big show, um, you know, a big concept like music or punk music, a lot of these performers, 
you know, they don't live in LA. And so we really had to find performers that were accessible to us. And also just the research, you know, this is a story that's, you know, 50 years old. So to find all that archival footage, it, you know, it was, it was such a joy to dig into. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Where can people watch it? So they can, um, if so, if you are a uh, member of PBS, actually, it's just download the PBS app on your Roku, Smart TV, Amazon Fire Stick, whatever, Apple TV, download the PBS app. It's available to everybody. It's free. So that's amazing. And you can also uh, stream it on our websites, pbssocal.org and uh, kcet.org. And the other episodes will be there as well under Outbound as well, correct? Absolutely. Yes, they are all there. Yeah. And now also as a senior producer of arts and culture at KCET and PBS SoCal, talk to us about your approach when it comes to storytelling. We know that the landscape is changing for us as storytellers right now as we evolve with the realm of television and digital, right? So what do you feel are some of the unique challenges that you face um, in bringing opportunities from the arts and culture segment to the audiences as we look at television and digital media? Well, you know, as you know, as part of PBS, you know, we really, really want to advance our mission of being public media for the good. Right. And so part of my mission is to always like find these sort of hidden communities, uh, communities that don't get their stories told very often. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, our mission is to not just uncover those stories, but to really deep dive, because for those communities, it's very meaningful to them. Um, you know, for instance, we produced a documentary about the East West Players. They are the longest running theater company of color in the United States, 58 years. Nobody has told a documentary about them. And that blew our mind. And we're talking like this is a theater company. One of the co-founders is James Hong from Everything Everywhere All at Once, like one of the hardest working actors with, I don't know, a gazillion credits on IMDb. Daniel Day Kim has performed on that stage. John Cho has performed on that stage. Tamlin Tamita, uh, uh, Tamlin Tamita is performing in Spring Awakening. Um, I love her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's a national treasure, right? <laughs> um, the, you know, uh, David Henry Wong, his plays have been produced there, the Tony Award-winning playwright of M. Butterfly. There are so many luminaries that have come from that space. And what's unique about that space is that, you know, it was created during the time, it's post-Watts Uprising, all the representation you're seeing of Asian Americans, you know, in film and television, they were awful. They were stereotypical. They were racist. They were very one dimensional, often the villain. And, you know, they were not cast in roles that they really craved to play. And so, you know, by having a space like the East West Players, these performers were given the opportunity to do Shakespeare, to do Sondheim, to also and more importantly, create new original work centering the Asian American. Uh, experience. I love that. I love that. Do you think you'd ever go back to screenwriting? Since that was an original love, it made me think of that when you mentioned East West players. Uh, you know, I'm right now enjoying just being a fan of all the content that is being created, you know, out there. Um, maybe, you know, I'm thinking, I'm Maybe. I don't want to say anything quite yet. I'm really enjoying telling true stories. I've been really leaning into that because what happens when you become a journalist and documentary filmmaker is that you have to engage with community. And I enjoy that so much. Um, I love t talking to real people and capturing their stories and being, um, being entrusted with telling them and sharing them with the public. And 
to me, that that is incredibly meaningful. And I like to do that as long as possible, but I won't say no. <laughs> <laughs> Never say no, right? Leave it open. And Nick, you're so, um, you have such a warm heart. And I feel like you, you always make people feel so comfortable and you genuinely are interested. And I think that's, you know, one of the really great characteristics of being a great storyteller. Because um, I picked that up from you. I'm going to dive a little bit into you personally. We've been talking about the career, but you know, there's there's things that really excite us as an artist. And I see through your work, there's a lot of cultural activism. So could you maybe share some things that are really personally, you know, inspiring for you or what keeps you going or what what's close to your heart that keeps you engaged in this arena? You know, right now I, I currently serve on two boards. I'm on the uh, board for the LA Press Club and I co-chair the Foot in the Door Fellowship, which is a program that uh, supports uh, young budding journalists of color. You know, you know this, you've worked in newsrooms. Every newsroom I've ever worked at, you know, I feel like if I'm not the only Asian American journalist, um, I am working for somebody that is, you know, you know, basically a white news director, right? You know, and it's 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 sometimes challenging to get your pitches across. And so that is something that I'm very interested in is supporting new journalists, um, uh, journalists of color. I also serve on the Armory Center for the Arts. And one of the things that I'm interested, the reason why I joined was their, how they center arts education, because I do believe um, arts education, you know, is in the decline in our public school system. And we need to figure out ways to provide those services to students because you know when you think about it music is math right you know <laughs> at the end of the day uh, there is so much to be gained uh, through arts education and I think um, the more we can provide those kinds of services ultimately as a society as a community that we can just grow from that we can incorporate that it's, it's so necessary I love that and I feel like arts has such a healing you know component to it as well we are almost out of time here. So as we wrap up, given your wide span of experience, all your accolades and just even the magic that you're creating, any advice that you would have for people who are listening or watching right now that do want to get into documentary filmmaking or journalism or even producing as you are? That's a great question. I, I, would, I would advise to listen to yourself. I personally think parents give terrible advice. They give safe advice. And to do the work that we do, it is a risk. And so you have to ask yourself, how willing are you to assume that risk? Um, because you, you need to be bold. So be bold. I love that. Be bold. Yeah, you're right. Especially in this day and age. I think I could even use that um, advice at some points. Nick, I want to thank you so much. Nick Chakim for joining us with this beautiful conversation. I, I feel so inspired after speaking with you. Where can our viewers or listeners find you on social media? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook, threads at Nick Chakim, N-I-C-C-H-A-K-I-M. Thank you so much. And again, Artbound, make sure you all do download the app and, and just follow Nick. He always has some wonderful things to share um, and is 
creating magic all the time. So thanks again, Nick. And I want to thank all of our viewers, our listeners. We'd love to hear from you. You are our valued, valued, I don't want to say customers, but we couldn't be here without you. So any suggestions that you have on topics for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, X, Instagram, and YouTube. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islander communities with a voice through media arts. If you'd like to support our program, please do visit us at AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm your host, Rasha Goel. Thank you once again for joining us on this beautiful, thought-provoking discussion, and we'll be back next week with more. Thank you.